Having that your faith can draw things out of Tim that he hadn't even thought of just because you're hungry. So Father, we thank you for Tim. Father, we bless him as a herald expressing things not yet seen, things still to come. And Father, we, we eagerly want to hear through Tim everything you've put in his heart to call out even if we haven't yet seen it. So Lord, would you bless him with an ease and a freedom to feel so welcomed with what he's got in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen, amen. Great. Um, lovely to see you all. So if you don't know me, my name's Tim. I'm the kind of leader of the church here at St. Matt's. Um, and we're kind of heading into the summer season doing some little bit of different things. If you were here uh, some of you were here last Sunday morning. You'll be aware that we we begun to look at kind of five overarching values that are, that we sense that God's d- defining within us as community. We're a new, relatively new church plant here. Five years I've been down here as vicar, and the church has kind of grown in that time and developing. But the things that we, I guess, feel very deeply about are these five values: worship-centered, Holy Spirit encounters family-focused, generationally joined, and apostolic community. And I'm aware that phrases like that can just become Christian jargon. Um, and what we want them to be is like, like the words written inside a stick of rock. You know, wherever you cut it, it says Brighton. Unless you're in Bournemouth, and then it may say Bournemouth. But they say whatever they say right the way through it. And um, we want these not just to be words or little kind of funky icons. We want them to be embedded in our hearts and lives. And we sense that's what God's calling us to be. Um, the good news is, uh, in the kind of, uh, when we come back after the summer, we're going to be doing a teaching series where we really press into what do these mean for us as church? What do we sense God's calling and shaping us to become? Many of them are already embedded in our culture. That's really important. But we, we sense God's stretching us and t- taking, them into, taking us into them. But just tonight, just as a kind of um, a taster, and because I felt God say to do it, and because there were lots of questions about it, I just want to concentrate on that last one, apostolic community. Uh, And we're going to just spend a little bit of time thinking around some of that tonight. For some of you, that may be a new phrase. You may have heard people talk about an apostolic center, an apostolic hub, apostolic church. And it will mean lots of different things to different people. Um, I guess in the UK for many years, um, there's been a a particular movement, a church stream that's often referred to itself as apostolic um, community church. That will be part of the Elim, Elim Church, Pentecostal Church. And there's elements of that that are helpful. But I sense God's causing us to think in new ways Paradigm. Who's heard that word, paradigm? That's oh, not many of you. You can go home and look that up. It's an exciting word. Many of you have. This is a new paradigm, a new way of thinking, a new way of culture becoming something different. That isn't just people going, oh, I'm bored with the old church. Let's try something new. But I sense, and it's not just in this city. It's not just in this country. It's globally. The Spirit of God is stirring the church to say, I am doing a new thing. And a new thing means it's not like something old. Say new thing. Good. Most of you are awake at this point. That's good. So a new thing is new because it's new, right? And when it's new, often we don't have a clear, oh, it means that. Because if we we knew what it meant exactly, then it perhaps wouldn't be new. We're exploring what new means. But new, surprisingly, does mean new. Okay. That's kind of where we're going to be thinking a bit about tonight. 
But here's the principle as we start. God is unchanging. Do you think that's true? <laughs> People get really scared when a, when a vicar or a church leader asks a question because they, they kind of think, oh, I, I do know the answer to that, but I'm not sure I want to say in case it's a trick question. And if when he says God is unchanging, I go, oh, yeah, yeah. And everyone else is going, no, we'll get a bit scared. But yeah, it wasn't a trick question. God doesn't change. Scripture tells us that. Hebrews 13.8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. James 1.17, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. Malachi 3.6, you don't need to put all these up, Mark, you'll get traumatized trying to find them quickly. Malachi 3.6, for I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. God is unchanging. That's a principle. That's really reassuring. So what we read God doing in the Old Testament, the miracles, the breath of what we read God doing in the New Testament in terms of healing, transformation, deliverance, I believe that's the same God. That's the same God we worship. That's the same God who pours out his grace on us. So therefore we should expect to see God moving in similar ways. God is unchanging. But... The way he works his purpose out amongst us, amongst his people, may change. And we, I think we need to be leaning in really close to the Father to hear his heartbeat, to hear how his heart beats, to hear his voice. We need to be leaning in in this time with real intensity saying, Lord, we want to be led by you, the good shepherd, where you want to take us. We need to be moving with the river of his spirit, which may be taking us to new places in new ways the breath of his mouth. Here's a verse from Daniel, Daniel 2, 20 to 21. I read this and I really like this. Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power his. That's good, isn't it? Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Then it says this, he changes times and seasons. He deposes kings and raises up others. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He changes times and seasons. I believe we li- we're living in remarkable days. We're living in days like no other. I guess that's true about every day. But I would suggest that God is wanting to do something in his church that is fresh, that is new. First of all, it's his church. It's not my church. It's not our church. It's actually his church. Jesus said, I will build my church. We're participants in that. We, we build alongside him and with him. We become living stones being built in his church. But I've been involved in church leadership for many, many years. I've been involved in all sorts of flavors and styles of church. Many of you who know me know all the stories I tell about those. Really unusual churches, really village of Dibley kind of rural churches, crazy charismatic swinging from the chandelier churches, packed with young people, really loud churches, really quiet churches, church with a few old people, church with you know hardly any people. I've been through Methodist, United Reform and Baptist uh, and New Frontiers and independent churches and, and Anglican churches. And, you know, part of them have all had something of God's grace in them. And they've had things to be really thankful for. And they've had things that I've just thought, man, that really sucks. And I've been part of the problem in all that. Someone once said, if you find the perfect church, don't go to it because you'll ruin it. Because that's the nature of who we are, isn't it? You know, we are imperfect people. There's no such thing as the perfect church apart from possibly the one in Revelation, which is his bride. Because when he looks at his bride, it's spotless and pure without blame. But what we often turn church into is more of an institution 
or a routine. But I believe in these days God is doing something new and remarkable in his church. And I think he's been longing for it for quite a while. I'm really thankful that I live in days where the kind of renewal of the, the, I guess the charismatic renewal of the 70s and rediscovery of worship and intimacy in worship and a kind of recognition of a connection with God actually changes the way, has changed the way in which many of us worship and encounter God. That's a really precious, precious thing. Church hasn't always been that. Church has gone through many, many difficult seasons, but I believe that God wants to do something new, and I believe he's been saying this for a while. A few years ago, um, I was part of a really large church um, in Bristol, a city not far from here, and it was a really expanding church. We'd already done, um, this was kind of the second church plant. The first one had grown massively. The second one was becoming a really big church, many, many hundreds of people. It had brilliant worship teams, brilliant preachers, amazing home groups. It was People were coming to faith. We'd see people healed occasionally. We'd see um, God's miracles and provision. It was a really brilliant church to be part of. It had its faults like any church, but it was really exciting. And one night when I was, I was on the leadership of this team, of this church with a team of people, one night I had a dream. And I was in this church that I was part of. And it was a Sunday night service, which was kind of our really buzzy service. And the church was packed. There were probably four, five hundred people in the church in my dream. And in the dream, it was one of those weird things in a dream. I've shared this here. Some of you will have heard me share it before, but it's relevant to what I want to share tonight. In this dream, you know when you have a dream and lots of things can happen all at the same time, which of course couldn't really happen, but in a dream it does and it kind of feels fine. It's normal. Well, that was kind of what was happening in this dream, because in this dream... I walked from the front of the church. I remember it so vividly, I can still picture it in my head now. I walked from the side, which is where the toilets were, and I walked around the front of the church, and the church was packed, and the band were really kicking it. It was the full worship band, and everyone was with their arms in the air worshipping. It was really loud and vibrant, and everyone was smiling. And as I walked across the front, kind of like across the front here, everyone was kind of really lost in worship and wonder. And then immediately in the dream... It switched to my friend who was preaching. Now, my friend um, Philip, he, he's an evangelist. He's probably one of the most um, inspiring, uh, in, inspirers and encouragers of the word of God. And he, he, you know, he would preach and many people re- respond to Christ. Really powerful speaker, really good, godly speaker. He was speaking and people were laughing and they were engaging with it. And I could see him smiling and doing his thing, on, you know, really enjoying it. But what was troubling for me was as I walked through this and the church was alive, As I walked through the church across the front, I was weeping in my dream. And I was crying, and I was looking at these faces, and I was crying. And I looked at Philip on the stage, preaching, and people responding, but I couldn't stop crying. I was weeping and weeping and weeping. And as I walked to the center of the church and looked up at the church and saw it full of people and full of activity and full of noise and and, and good things, I couldn't stop crying And at that point, I woke up, bolt upright in bed, weeping, absolutely crying and crying and crying. And I heard one of those rare times, I would say the audible voice of God. I heard God say, I want my church back. I want my church back. And I I mean, I was shocked. (laughs) And I couldn't stop crying. I went downstairs and spent a long time in prayer trying to see what God was saying. Now, I don't say that as an indictment on that particular church because it wasn't specific to that church. What I sense, and I've sensed it for the last 10 years, that dream won't leave me and it shakes me even now, is that we can do lots of really good things. And we can do them really, really well. 
And because God is so kind and gracious, he will even bless a lot of what we do. And we see fruit and we see God's kingdom come. So I'm not making judgments about what we do as church. But sometimes we take it out of God's hand and it becomes our thing. That we shape, we create, we make, we strive for, we work for, we build, we build, we build, we build. And Jesus says, I will build my church. And I guess over the last few years, I've constantly, as a church leader, had to say, Lord, it's your church What do you want to do with your church? What do you want your church to look like? What do you want your church to do? How do you want your church to exist and to breathe? And Because your church is not about a building or services. It's about his people and how we serve his purpose in our days. I believe we live in days where God is continuing to say, I want my church back. Not like some trophy that he holds to himself, but in order that he can present this bride to the world, pure and spotless and radiant and powerful and dynamic and glorious to bring transformation in the world. Jesus never came to set up an institution or kind of an event or just kind of nice buildings. He came to change the world through his people. Jesus returned to the Father and said, it's better that I go back so I can pour out my spirit on you so that my people can carry me into the world. That's what we're called to do. That's our mandate. That's our calling. And I think in these days, God is calling the church to become more apostolic. And I want us just to open up to begin tonight the discussion about it. I think we live in a new season and a new season brings with it, I would suggest, what Jesus called new wine. We heard one of the readings uh, today from Luke, Matthew 9.17. Jesus said this, Neither do people pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst. The wine will run out and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins and both are preserved. I think God is wanting to create new wineskins for his church, new shapes, new models of church, and those are the days we're in. And when a new season begins, there's often an unsettledness, an uncertainty, a slight uncomfortable time of asking questions, because we can look at something old and go, oh, well, I know what that looks like. And when God says, no, I want to do something new, we say, well, what's that going to look like? And he says, well, I'll show you, take the first step. It's like, it's like Joshua, isn't it? I'll give you the land, Joshua. You're going to take the land. And Joshua goes, woohoo, great. And he's looking and he's thinking, well, it's not been given to us yet. And God says, no, I want you to go. And wherever you put your foot, I'll give you that land. I've said it before. If he didn't go, the land wouldn't have been taken. He takes a step. That part of land under his feet becomes his. And he takes a step and the next part becomes. There's this strange participation that God wants to use us as part of his purposes. And it's true with the church. And so there's often lots of questions. Well, Lord, what's this new thing? What's this talk of apostolic center? What what does that look like? And God shows us a little bit. Sometimes he shows us a long way. He shows us the promised land in the future. But actually he shows us the bit down here. When we were praying earlier on, Paul had that verse from Psalms, isn't it? Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And sometimes we read God's word, it's a lamp to our feet. It just shows where our feet are and the next step. 
And it's like a kind of, it literally is a pool of light. If you hold a lamp by your feet in the darkness, all you can see is your feet. A lamp is no good to see the way ahead. It just shows you the next step so you don't trip. And sometimes that's how God leads us. He just shows us the next step. Why? Because I think sometimes if he went onto full beam and showed where we were going, we'd be like, I am not going there. No way. People of faith that we are. <laughs> but I think that's true. You know, I think if, 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 if God had told Joshua all of the battles and everything that he was going to fight, half of the people would have said, no, no it's not going to happen. Or if God had told Gideon right in the beginning the whole picture of where he was going, there's no way he would have done it. Oh, yeah, by the way, I'm going to cut all your thousands of people down to about 300. That should do it. He'd have been like, I am not getting out of this barrel. God is often kind, and he shows us the next step because he knows what we can take and what we can have faith for. But there are times when his, his word isn't just a lamp to our feet. It is a light to our path, and sometimes... It's like the, 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 the full beam of our car flips up a little bit. And for a moment, we get a glimpse of where we're going. We get a glimpse of the promised land. And, and, and God says to Gideon, behold, mighty warrior. And he says, who, me? We get a glimpse of what can be. And God speaks of the promised land that you can take. Moses, you're going to take my people into the promised land. And the, the lights flash up, and sometimes we see a distance. We know where we're going, and then it's back to the pool of light by our feet. We know where we're going. We don't know the full journey. We don't have all the answers. But we have what we need for today, which is the next step. God, I believe, is doing that in church and in leadership often today. So it is a time of unsettledness. It is a time of questions and uncertainty. And it's good to ask those questions. Don't be afraid of asking those questions. So what does it look like? What, what might it be like? What are going to be the challenges? I think it's really important to ask those questions. Is this really you, Lord? Are you doing a new thing? Is it really What's wrong with the old wineskin, Lord? Why don't we just stick with that, what we know well? And it's often a new season, and with new seasons come new language and new, uh, new ideas, new ways of thinking, new paradigms, and that can kind of provoke us. But it's also, an, therefore, an opportunity, new opportunities with new grace and a new anointing for breakthrough and new obedience. And if I'm honest... I, have to, I keep saying, Lord, there's got to be more than this. I mean, you are all lovely, right? Don't get me wrong. You're all special. Some of you are very special in a very special kind of way. I love church. I love this church. I love being vicar here. I love looking after St. Tom's. I love what God is doing amongst us. And I know we're kind of going into holiday season, and we've lost loads of students for the summer, and other people are away on holiday. But I, whether we're 150 or whether we're whatever we are tonight, 50... I don't mind, because we're God's people walking together. But if I'm honest, my daily thought is, not when I look at you, but my daily thought is, Lord, there's got to be more than this. <laughs> I don't mean that to put us down, but Lord, I long for more. If, if this is all it is, then God, you know, surely we should just go and do something else. I've been part of church leadership for many years, and I've seen God do lots of great things but I'm tired of just doing church services. I'm tired of just getting the kettle on and rolling out and, you know, trying to encourage us. And, and, and that we, there's got to be more because actually what I read in this 
is a kingdom advancing and communities and lives being transformed. And every now and then we get glimpses of that, don't we? When we've seen people here on Sunday nights get saved and respond to the gospel, my heart sings and I think, Lord, thank you. When we have baptisms here and you know, we've got everyone going into the pool and there's water everywhere and Peter's freaking out about the electrics and all that. I love it. I love it when we see life and vibrancy. I love it when we're worshipping in here sometimes and we just lose track of time and we just continue to worship. I love that. But I'm spoiled for that and I want more of it. I love it when we see healings. I love it when we see breakthrough and deliverance. But I'm greedy for more because that's what I read about in here. Greater things you'll do, says Jesus. Really? He did some pretty cool things. But greater things you'll do, says Jesus. Well, I long for that. And when I read about the gifts of the Spirit, you know, the uh, prophecy and tongues and interpretations of tongues and miracles and words of knowledge, and I want them all. <laughs> I don't just want them every now and then. I long for more because God is the God of more. And I don't believe it's because God hangs back. God is wanting to bless. Why? Because there's a world out there that don't know about him. And his longing is that his light... His gospel of good news is made known to the world out there in words, through works, and in wonders. And we're called to participate in that. And if I'm honest, the church in which I've been part of, independent church, Baptist church, Anglican church, as good as it is, and God's kind, it's not really doing it. I've been part of a big Anglican church where we would gather on a Sunday morning with maybe three or four hundred. And it was brilliant. It was great. And I was part of the team there and part of the leadership there. But it kind of, I've said this to Paul and a few others, if increasingly those sort of churches feel like you're on a steam train. And to keep them on the track, you've got to shovel more and more coal in just to keep this thing moving. And you get hot and sweaty and you're just shoveling coal in. And you get to the point where you're working so hard shoveling coal in to keep this big beast moving that you can't even remember why you're doing it anymore. And it just becomes a job. And you get dirty and sweaty and you never have time to look out the window. You're just keeping the machine on the tracks. And you're terrified about it coming to a standstill or coming off the tracks. And in the meantime, you're losing people off the back of the carriage who are falling off because you don't have time really to talk to them anymore in any real depth. I don't believe that is the church that Jesus Christ intended. He intended a family. He intended a community where we will take a bullet for one another where we love each other to death, where we honour one another, where we sacrifice one another, where we give with generosity beyond our means because we know that our Father in heaven will provide for us, where we pray for the sick, where we reach out in faith, where we even take risks saying, we'll pray for the dead. I've heard three stories this week of people being raised from the dead and I think, I don't want to hear stories about it. I want to see us as family in our city. I want to hear churches and be participating where we see the miraculous kingdom of heaven breaks out because we've got a world out there that needs to hear the good news. We are a people who are sent. We're not supposed to be a people who just simply hide in our church walls, keeping services going. There's the joke, isn't there? What's the difference between a church and a helicopter? What's the similarities between a church and a helicopter? Well, you have to be really careful because if you get near to both, you might get sucked into the rotors. If that's what church has become, a place where you keep your eyes down on the floor so you don't end up on one of the busy rotors, then we've done something catastrophically wrong. Jesus didn't come to set up an institution with rotors. 
He came to create a family where there's life, like a well of hope and energy and wisdom and teaching and training and equipping and sending. That's his heart for us as an apostolic people, I believe. And we don't judge the old wineskins because God often takes us through a journey, doesn't he? So those churches I've described that I've been part of, you know, I can't point the finger and blame at them because half of them I've been part of leading and shaping. But all the way through I've had this voice in my head, God saying, I want my church back in order that I can shape it and present it to the world in the way that I thought of. We shouldn't, and this is really important, I, I, I'm technically in the Anglican world described as a pioneer minister. I've got a pioneer qualification, whatever that means. But I've been around a lot of pioneers who are desperate to do the new thing. And they get the cloak and they get the shiny suit and they get the pants that they wear on their outside and they're like, dun, 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 I'm coming as a pioneer minister. Uh, I don't do any of those things, you'll be pleased to know. But sometimes there's also a culture in pioneer ministry which is kind of belittling old models in heritage church. It's slightly snooty about and saying, well, that's a bit rubbish really. I'm not saying we do that. Actually, we need to honour the wineskins that are old. Why? Because once they were new. And old wineskins have grown with that new wine that was in them then to a place to allow them to grow and to flourish. So often what's in old wineskins is really good old wine. The best. Mark will tell you about really nice good old wine. I've come from those old wineskins. I'd like to think I've aged like a good old wine. <laughs> Thank you. But I recognize that God is doing something new. And Jesus clearly said, if you put new wine into old wineskins, they'll burst. Why? Because there's something wrong with those old wineskins? No. They were for a season that held something precious and beautiful. That at one time were new wineskins. I think that happened in the church in the UK in the 70s. God bought new wine through John Wimber and through the charismatic renewal. In the Anglican church, in the independent churches, in the church planting and house movement in the 70s and 80s. We're part of the legacy of that. So we honour that. But God's doing something new. And we need to say, yes, Lord, okay, we'll be obedient. Therefore, we need new wineskins for the new wine. New wine is energized. It's, it's growing, if you like. It's alive and it's expanding. It literally expands new wine. And therefore, it will break old wineskins. And the, and, and the wine will be spilt. New wine needs something new to house it in. That's what I sense God is doing amongst us. And we see that in the Bible. This isn't a new thing. If you think about the Old Testament, and then you think about the New Testament, the New, the new Covenant, it must have been really tricky for those early Messianic Jews who became Christians who followed Jesus. Remember, their culture had all been about the law. It had all been about following certain ways, washing your hand in the right way, chopping certain bits off. They were happy to lose that one, possibly. But you know, that, that was their whole world. Their whole paradigm was Jewish law. And then Jesus says, I haven't come to, to kind of dispose the law. I've come to fulfill it. This is a new beginning. So for those early Jewish believers who found Christ, who believed this is the Messiah, their heads were probably fizzing trying to work out what this was going to mean for them, what it looks like. New paradigms often unsettle us. They make us uncertain. God is unchangeable. 
but he is dynamic. He's always on the move. Aslan. I love that bit where it says Aslan's on the move in The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. I believe in these days Aslan is on the move. And if we hear the roar of the lion, we'll realize he's on the move. And we want to move with him, in step with him. He's doing something new. God, I believe, is transforming the model of church that many of us have become part of, inherited model, which is primarily a model of pastor-driven church. The church, hopefully, has been led by a pastor who's nice, a nice pastor. And everyone feels lovely in the church because the pastor knows all their names mainly and and he loves them and it's very comfortable and it's very nice but it's very pastor driven it's very inward relational but in a way that becomes quite kind of inclusive and kind of can sometimes be quite closed down i believe that god is transforming and challenging us to become less of a pastor led church to more of an apostolic led church and we'll unpack that more over the next few months that an apostle is someone who leads with an authority and a mandate to shape church as a visionary as a leader not in a domineering way and we've seen those as well in a way that does model what it is to be a pastor but also a prophet and also an evangelist and and to hold some of those things and to release others in their gifting so that they can fulfill the call on their lives in a way that's the se- that's the season i believe that we're in i want to do a bit of church history and, I, and I, i'm going to try and whiz through some stuff but i think hopefully it's helpful to understand where we've come from and where we're going that was all the introduction no it wasn't we'll, <laughs> we'll try and whiz through some stuff the early church when you read the book of acts and i encourage you to read the book of acts again Read it as a whole narrative to see what happens in that incredible time. Because it's when the church exploded. Pentecost, we've just celebrated it here, haven't we? It's when the church began. And at Pentecost, there was an initial harvest of 3,000 on that first day. Uh, that, that would shake your paradigms and your, and your kind of models of church. So 3,000. And it was multi-generational, a whole mixture of ages and backgrounds. And, it, and that growth continued, actually. It wasn't just on that first day. How did they do it? Well, what happened is that that church, part of what allowed that church to flourish was the structure that it was part of in Jerusalem. Those first leaders established Jerusalem as a center for teaching, training, and equipping. That's really what that church looked like in Jerusalem. It wasn't just a pastor, oh, come here, come and gather in and we'll have a lovely time and then you just go and get on with your jobs and then you come back in a week's time. It wasn't that at all. It was a We've been turned around by, the, by Christ. We've experienced his power of his Holy Spirit. We now need to be equipped, trained, and inspired so that we can go and do what God's calling us to be. It became a real center for sending out. To equip the saints to do the works of Jesus. I've already said this first. John 14:12. Very truly I tell you, Jesus says, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing and they'll do even greater things than these because I'm going to the Father. Who believes that verse? <laughs> Peter puts his hand up really quickly. I, I know I should believe that verse. <laughs> That's quite a hard verse for us to believe, isn't it? Maybe. But I wouldn't want to call Jesus a liar. Because that's the alternative, I would suggest. Hear his words again, John fourteen twelve. Very truly, he says, just to re- reassure you. Whoever believes in me, do you believe in Jesus? 
That's a good start. <laughs> Whoever believes in me will do the works I've been doing. I mean, even that bit's a bit painful, if we're honest. And they'll do even greater things than these. I love that verse because it, it shakes me and challenges me. I mean, I struggle even to think what the greater things are. Then I start dreaming a bit and imagining, and I get quite excited. Imagine the people of God in this city doing the things that Jesus did and even greater things. Do you not think that would grab a few headlines? Do you not think that would begin to turn education and the health system and the politics and the backbiting and the pain and the poverty and the injustice in the city on its head? If we started, really started, not just talked about or thought it would be nice if we did one day. But, and I know, don't get me wrong, I know we are doing some of the things that he did in this city. It's beautiful what the people of God are doing. But even greater things. That's what I long for. That's what I believe is his mandate for us. And so the church started training people, inspiring people and sending them out. And were they naive and did they know all the stuff? Yeah, probably wildly. Partly because they just simply took Jesus at his word and what they had learned. And they were filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, which is, was one of our key values, being filled and encountering the power of the Holy Spirit. But Jerusalem was just the beginning. And Antioch was kind of the next place that happened. It's really interesting how God uses circumstance. You remember when Stephen in Acts is stoned to death and the church scatters in fear because of the persecution. And I love this little verse. It says, and as they went, they went preaching the gospel. Even as a persecuted, beaten up, slightly scared people who didn't really know what the heck was happening and they were running away, Satan must have been smashing his head against the wall going, what have I done? Because the gospel went out of Jerusalem. Rather than it being contained in this one place, it went everywhere. Because they were scattered and as they went they preached the gospel and the gospel went with all these scattered Christians and the gospel exploded outwards going on the routes that the Romans had set up on those where you can watch it on maps where they followed the roads that the Romans very kindly had built so the gospel could go out to the world on the trade routes on the boat routes on the road routes, the gospel explodes along these perfectly timed roads and routes that have been built by the Romans so the gospel could fly. I love the way God works through circumstances. And Antioch became a major city. Antioch was um, located 300 miles north of Jerusalem, which was not an insignificant distance in those days. And it was an incredibly influential city, kind of one of the main global locations in the world. The church was born in Jerusalem, and you can read about it there. But what happened in, uh, in Antioch was amazing as well. The church began to grow. And something amazing happened that no, none of the Jews could ever imagine, even at that point. And we, we don't get it, most of us here who are Gentile, not from a Jewish background. Do you remember in um, Acts 11, Peter has this vision, this unthinkable vision. He's asleep up in the, you know, he's had a sanger in the afternoon. He's sitting on the roof in the sun and this vision comes down of this food, all this unclean food. And he's told to eat from it. And Peter says, no, no, never. I'm a good Jewish boy. I'd never do that. And then God says, don't call unclean what I call clean. And then the vision happens again. And you'll remember that he's then taken by Cornelius who comes to him and takes him to this household that's full of, Jewish, full of non-Jewish people, full of Gentiles. And Peter sees that they've been impacted with the gospel and they've become Christians. And Peter's thinking, but 
the gospel's for Jews. And, and the father has to explain, no, 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 all along the gospel has been for the whole world. It's been for everyone. And so in Antioch, which was actually mainly, not, there were very few Gentiles in Jerusalem. It had to be somewhere else. So in Antioch, where it was full of non-Jewish people, the gospel explodes and an amazing thing happens. But it really shook those early, it was a new paradigm. They couldn't imagine that the church could be for non for, for, for non-Jewish people. They had to rethink what it would look like for them. And it was a really, really, really big deal. It was something completely unexpected. We read, Some of them, however, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. And the Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. It was an amazing, amazing, powerful thing. And what happened in Antioch? Well, again, the apostles began to teach inspire, equip, and train the people. Um, and we, we, we see them being a people who are sent out. It became a training center. And what were they being taught? Well, they weren't being taught to kind of get just into deep theology for themselves, and they weren't taught about to try and work out what year Jesus might come back. No, they were taught real key truths. They were taught the basics of the Christian faith so they could grow to become mature believers reproducing themselves and go out and share that good news with everyone they encountered, whatever sphere of life they came from, whether they were slaves or servants, whether they were business people, whether they were political leaders, whether they were temple leaders, whatever God put them, they were to be equipped so that in their context they could share the good news and lead others to Christ. And at the time, they were called followers of the way because they were following the way of Jesus, which was going out and sharing the good news. So, they were equipped, they were sent out. What are, what, why are we looking at all this and what's it all about? What are we trying to say? Well, I want to close um, with this thought. Why are we looking and talking about being an apostolic centre? Why don't we just carry on doing church as it's supposed to be? Well, I think it's good for us to all ask a question really honestly ourselves. Why are we here? <laughs> Some of you might be thinking that tonight. <gasps> Why am I here? As long as I'm home in time for Top Gear, it'll be fine. Why are we here? Why are we here this Sunday night? Why are you here? Well, some of you have been invited. Some of you are guests. Some of you have walked in off the street. Who knows? I believe you're here because God wants you to be here. Is it simply to hold a Sunday night service because that's what church does? To have a bit of worship, to hear a bit from the Bible, to be a bit encouraged, to have some nice coffee, because we have nice coffee here, and then to go home. Is, is it just, is church, is St. Matt's as a community about holding services? Or is it something more than that? I have to be honest, and this is me speaking really honestly. I can't speak for anyone else, but for me as a leader... If I am called as a church leader to simply run services, then I don't want to do it anymore. And I don't mean that as a disservice to anyone else, but I am not here. I'm not signed up to this just simply to run services or even just to do good stuff. I want to see our city transformed. That's the only reason I'm here. I want to see Bath a place that's on fire for Jesus, where people use the name of Jesus, not as a swear word, but in awe and wonder. I, I, want, I want to see my city 
one for Christ. I weirdly opened my son's, um, I was up in the loft and I opened a bag where there were some old clothes. I was trying to find some new football boots, old football boots, but new for, for Joey. And I saw a t-shirt that belonged, used to belong to Sam. It was a Spider-Man t-shirt. It's great. But on this Spider-Man t-shirt, it had some words and I started to cry. Because it was Spider-Man swinging through, what city is Spider-Man in? Someone here will know. Whatever, New York is it? Whatever city is swinging through. And across this t-shirt it says, it's my city. And I started to cry and I think it was a Holy Spirit moment up in the loft. I felt very stupid. <laughs> but I felt God say, this is his city. This is his city and it's also my city and he's put me here and he's put you here for a reason. And it's not just to enjoy the bath spa or to enjoy sitting by the river or to look at the Georgian buildings and go, oh, aren't they nice? Or to go and have a lovely meal, you know, uh, whatever your favorite shop is or food places. It's not just coincidence you're here. God has put you here. To help transform the city that he's put you in. And church is not supposed to be a nice thing that happens on Sunday nights and Sunday mornings that some people can go to and it's quite good. We are here to transform this city. To see this city taken for God. Not in a military way, but flooded with love. Flooded with prayer. Flooded with the power of the Holy Spirit. I had a dream 15 years ago. And I don't really understand the dream. But in this dream, I, was, I walked into a, like a pub, a bar, and on the, on the TV, on the TV, the, the news person was saying, we don't know what's happening. We don't know what's happening. And it was like a stadium, and there were people flooding forward, and they were all kneeling down on the floor. And then I walked outside the pub and I walked around the corner and I remember the steps. It was 15, 20 years ago, this dream. And I saw these steps with this person sitting on the step crying, saying, I don't know what's happening. There's so much love. I don't know what's happening. I'm so filthy. And I woke up. And I thought, what on earth was that? And I went back to sleep. And immediately I had exactly the same dream. Exactly the same dream. In this pub, the TV screen, and everyone in the whole pub, no one was talking, they were looking at the TV screen, and the reporter saying, I don't know what's happening, I don't know what's happening. And there were people crying in the pub, and outside the person on the step again, I walked around the corner, the same person crying, saying, I don't know what's happening, I feel so much love, I feel so filthy. And I know, I don't know, understand what that dream was, but I felt like God gave me a glimpse of this is what can happen in a city. When the power of God so floods the land that the holiness of God transforms hearts. We've seen it in the Welsh revivals. You can read about it in the Hebridean revivals. You can read about it in the revivals around the world. You can read about it in the Welsh pits where the ponies couldn't work anymore because overnight the miners stopped swearing at them. And the pit, the pit ponies didn't know what to do anymore. Because the, the, the Welsh miners weren't swearing at them to move down the... Because they had been so overwhelmed with the power of the Holy Spirit, their hearts, minds and bodies were transformed. I long for that. Now, I don't know what revival and restoration will look like, but I long to see God's kingdom come in our city. Can we believe that might happen? 
I don't want to live in days where that doesn't happen. I don't want to get to my deathbed and think, well, it would have been nice to see a few more people become Christians. I want in my days to see God move through this city to bring transformation to our systems, to our politics, to our schools, where you can go into most of the schools in our city and young people don't even know who Noah is. They don't know who Jesus is because no one's ever told them. God is calling us to be an apostolic community that brings transformation. And I will close with this, and I'm sorry I've gone on a long time tonight. God wants us to transform culture. God wants us to transform our church culture, but most importantly, the culture that we are part of. We are a sent people, and we have an apostolic mandate, like Moses. We haven't even talked about him tonight, but he was sent by God, and he was scared, and he didn't want to do it, and he kept making excuses. You can read that story again, and eventually God says, just go. I'm going with you, because we're a sent people. We're not on our own. We're sent by heaven. We're sent by God. And that's an adventure. Some of you in this room love adventures. Some of you are less keen on some adventures. But I'm telling you, you are made for adventure. Every single one of you is made for adventure. You are made to go beyond your comfort zone into somewhere where you see the power of God doing amazing things. Because if we operate in the realm where we can do what we do, then we don't need God anymore. We have to operate in a realm where we say, oh, bother. I need you, Jesus, to help me right now. And he's kind. He does. We are sent on an apostolic venture. We are sent. We are sent people. Jesus said, as the Father sent me, so I am. Do you think that was just those first disciples? We'd like to go, yeah, it's just them, not me. (laughs) But I don't think that's true. Jesus says to you tonight, as the Father sent me, so I'm sending you. Every single one of you, if you have a pulse and you love Jesus, you are sent. And you don't get to retire until you stop breathing. There's always more. There's always a new adventure. There's always a new landscape, a new territory that you're called to. There's always new promises, and we're sent to go. It's really interesting, that, that word uh, uh, apostle, it means, at its most simple, it means a sent one. In the New Testament, where the word's used, it's actually used in the Roman context. Remember, the New Testament was, was write, were written by writers who lived under Roman rule, and they were emissaries. An apostle was someone who was sent by the Roman army. They were a fleet that was sent out to take new territory. So within the Roman Empire, when an ambassador was sent by the emperor, he was sent with an army to take new land. And the idea was that they would invade a new territory. This was the whole idea of Rome. They would invade a new territory, they would occupy it, and they would occupy it and transform everything to the point that it became just like Rome. So that when the emperor came to visit, all of the structures, the language, the financial systems, the politics... That it felt like just like being in Rome. And that, I would suggest, is what you and I are called to do. That we are sent by the Father to invade places that seem like they're under enemy control. And we invade them, not militarily, but with love and grace and peace and authority. Power from the Holy Spirit. With wisdom, with truth, with teaching, with gifts. And we invade them and we occupy them. We stand there firm as Christians and say, yeah, we're here. 
We're sent by God. We've got his authority. We've got his mandate. And we're going to occupy this land. And we're going to take it with confidence. Not in us, but in him in us. And then we begin to transform that culture. So the kingdom of heaven comes. I want to pray for us. You've been incredibly patient. We're not called to have take a military takeover by the church. But we're called to extravagantly with a servant-hearted heart and love sent out, a people sent out into the world. And we're sent from a place. We're sent from a body. And then we're received back. And we go and we serve God's purpose. And then we come back and we encourage each other. And we bind one another up where we're bruised and a bit blooded. Because that happens too. And we encourage each other with stories of truth. And we equip and we learn and we train. And we build ourselves up in God. And then we're sent again. That's what we're called to do as a gathered people and as a sent people in the power of his spirit so that heaven would come on earth, that his kingdom would come, that his will would be done and that Bath would be on earth as it is in heaven. That's my longing. And that's what I believe the days of the church is being called to. Let's pray. Jesus, I know I've taken lots of words to say a few things. But Lord, I pray that above all things we would hear your heartbeat. Lord, you're looking for a church that's alive. Jesus, you said in John 10 that you came to give life and life with abundance. And we know there's an enemy who came to steal, kill, kill and destroy. But Jesus, you came for life. And your church is called to be a well of life, a place of resourcing and encouragement and training and equipping in order that we may go filled to the brim with all the goodness of heaven. So Holy Spirit, would you help us to understand what that might begin to look like? And for us as church and for leaders, would you help us to understand what it might mean that we need to put down or to reimagine, or to not hold so cling, cling so, so firmly to because we're afraid of letting go of the old. We say that this is your church, Jesus. We are your people, and we want your will to be done. Lord, we give you this building. We give you our finances. We give you our resources. We give you our staff team. We give you our life hubs. We give you our hopes, our dreams. We give you our longings. We give you our brokenness. We give you our poverty. And we ask, Lord, that you would take whatever you want to to use for your glory, that we might be fruitful for your glory, and that we, along with the rest of your church in this city, your beautiful bride, may be vessels of transformation for this city, so that this city may be a place that people look at and say, what is happening? There's heaven on earth, healing, wholeness, transformation, an end to poverty, justice, truth, integrity, fruitfulness. Well, that's what we long for. So that in all things, Jesus, you would be glorified, we pray in your precious name. Amen.